Amen. So we started this series last week to go through the book of Joshua. And let me just remind you why we're going through the book of Joshua. So uh, the book of Joshua is really God's manual to his people for how to overcome fear. His people were being led out of Egypt, and so he was trying to teach them how to get out of slavery into freedom. And so he took them through the desert, gave them some rules for what it's like to actually live under a free kind of lifestyle as opposed to being slaves all the time. And they were having a hard time with God's new laws of freedom and having a difficult time leaving their life of slavery. But eventually they made it to the land God had promised. We call it the promised land. It's also called Canaan or modern-day Palestine. And they make it to the land, and they go in, they spy the land, they realize, oh my goodness, these people are too strong for us, too big for us, and we don't have enough military might to win this battle. They chicken out, they say, we are too afraid, and God says, okay, if you're too afraid to do it with me, then I'll step aside, and you can try to do it by yourself. And eventually they do try to go in without God's assistance and they fail miserably and then they wander for 40 years in the wilderness till all of them die. Now all of those uh, adults who were afraid before are dead and now their children who have been raised on this story, have been raised in the wilderness, have been raised on God's special provision of manna and things like that throughout their whole lifetime lifetime, they are now entering the promised land. Moses is dead. Joshua is the leader. And God says, okay, in order to overcome the problem of last time, we have to train you bit by bit into being people who are fearless, or if not fearless, at least people who fear a little less. And so the book of Joshua is really God training his people to overcome that age-old fear so that they can put their trust completely in God. And so we are going through it for that very same reason. We are going through it for the very same reason. Last, last week I asked you guys what scared you, and I told you a little bit of my fears of roller coasters. Well, today I want to tell you a similar fear, not roller coasters, but driving, particularly driving on 26. How many of you have ever driven on 26 out towards Kokomo? One of the scariest roads in the world other than 200, which I was on this last week. I don't know if you've ever been on 200. County Road 200 South is this amazingly beautiful empty road when you're heading east. And then they paved this area, and it's got all these bumps and stuff, and so it's really super fun. You hit, that, hit those bumps going 60, and it's like, woo, you get the butterflies in you and all that stuff, and going, going east, it's fine. But this last week, I took my daughter out to a party going east, and then when I came home going west, I realized that all the cars were going east. And I was now having to pass cars in this tiny little area, and that was freaking me out. But no place scares me as much as this little tiny spot right outside of Rossville, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but there's a spot going on 26 just outside of Rossville where the road inexplicably shifts to the left one lane. And I'm thinking, so when you shift, you are now in like another person's lane. And that's kind of the way. So anyway, it shifts in such a way. But the worst part about this shift, I don't know if you've seen this, but the worst part about this shift is that at the moment it shifts to the left, a ditch opens up on the right that is about 100 feet deep. And it, I have never seen the bottom of it, and I pray to God that I never will. 
because it's like all of a sudden your lane is gone and there's a ditch in front of you. And uh, anyway, so I go and I take Charlie to and from school. He's out in Taylor, which is in Upland, Indiana, which is out on 26 past Kokomo, another 45 minutes. And just every single time I go through Rossville, I'm just like, no, this has to be, oh, and I'm freaking out all the time. Anyway, so driving is one of the things that kind of freaks me out. But we are in a process, in a journey of trying to become fearless people, not necessarily over driving, but over other aspects of our lives. And so I want to give you our theme verse for this whole series comes out of Joshua 1.9. God says this to Joshua. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And this is the fundamental lesson that we're going to be learning time and time again through this book. The reason we can be fearless is that God is with us. Now, this is God promising to Joshua that he would be with Joshua wherever he would go. And last week, we uncovered a passage in the New Testament where Jesus says, from now on, I'm going to be with all of y'all. I'm going to be with everyone who's a follower of mine, and I'm going to do it because I can send my spirit to be with you all the time. And that, that's an amazingly, uh, amazing truth, a, a fear-breaking truth. And it begins here where God says, if the Lord your God is with you, then there's no reason for you to be afraid. Now, we've got some training to do, though. So last week, I gave you the first step in how to realize God's presence in your life. And it's just simply this. Remember. Remember God. Remember, A, his past provision in your life, the things in your life that he has come through, the times in your life when he has come through. Remember his future promises. He hasn't promised you a rose garden, but he's promised you eternity. He's promised you glory. He's promised you a kind of blessing that is unlike what you could know on your own or invent on your own. And he's promised you peace in your heart and joy in your life in the midst of whatever circumstances you might be facing. These are incredible promises that God has given to all of us. And then finally, also remember, Remember that God is with you now. His presence goes with you now. That's what Bob was talking about. God's provision, his promises, and his presence. These are the three things that if you hang on to, that is your first step towards overcoming fear. Now, your second step we actually learned about last week. Remember, there's this story where these priests are going to enter the Jordan River and God is going to make the river stop flowing so that the people can cross on dry land. But the river doesn't stop until the priests take their step into it. And so they had to step into it first before the river would stop flowing. And it's in that moment that we get our lesson for today. Step number two in becoming fearless is ironically, step. It's not run. It's not walk. It's step. These things happen one at a time. And so what we're going to be talking about today is how do you take that next right step based on who you know God is? And so we begin in chapter two. That's really kind of where we're starting. But as you flip to there, if you haven't already flipped there, I want to show you a couple pictures on the screen to tell you a story of a time when I took a step. Now, here is the biggest and most important lesson you need to know about steps. And it is the same lesson that your five-year-old has asked you anytime you've been on a road trip, right? What is the question that the five-year-old asks you when you're on a road trip? Are we there yet? Now, that's the question they used to ask. Now it's, can I watch another movie? 
But back then, it was, are we there? Back a long time ago, it was, are we there yet? And your answer, of course, is, I don't know. But you can't say that because you're, you have a distance to go and you don't know how long the distance, when are we going to get there? I don't know. I know I'm not there now, but I don't know when I'm going to get there. Here's the lesson about steps. You never know when your step is the last step before you reach the destination. You know, when you're looking for a lost item, you never know when the last place you're going to look is until you find the thing. And when you're taking your steps, you never know which step is going to be the actual step that gets you to your destination until you reached it, until you actually get there. I want to show you a picture. Um, This summer, my family took a road trip, and we had this amazing time going um, going through... basically the entire western United States. So let's uh, put this map up here. And on the top right-hand corner, you can see there's a tiny little blue dot for the people in the back that says 90, and that's Billings, Montana. And then if you follow a little yellow line down here to the green area, this is Yellowstone National Park. And so this little yellow line that that goes from Billings to Yellowstone is 212, U.S. Route 212. And we were on this road because we were in Billings and we wanted to go to Yellowstone and that was the smartest path to go. But there's something that the map I was looking at didn't indicate to me at the time that we decided to take this route. And let's go to the next one. I don't know if you can make this out, but that's a lot. The technical word for this is squiggles. That's a lot of road squiggles. And so we went through this area called Rock Creek Vista here, and it was just it was just going up a little side of a mountain and then turning back the other direction and going up the side of the mountain this way and then turning back the other way. And the whole time, it's like we're going 25 miles an hour and there are motorcycles whipping past us and coming the other direction and big semis. There weren't any semis, but there were other big cars. There were a couple RVs that we were like, What? You know, who in the world is bringing an RV on this kind of thing? But it was that, it was that sort of deal. And you, you don't know when the last turn is going to be, you know? And there are only two options. Either you don't make the turn and that's your last turn, or you do make the turn and you're like, yes, I made the last turn. And you don't know. And so we're going back and forth. We're kind of switching back and we're just, everyone's nervous. Everyone's on edge, except... Those of the people in the car who were able to look out the side windows got to see this. (laughs) Roads like this. And look at that one right here, Beartooth Highway. I don't know if you can see, but there's a shadow under the road. Because there's like a cliff on this... Anyway, that's, that's the kind of stuff that, that they were seeing. What I was seeing mostly was this. And anyway, go to the next one. <laughs> that's the picture out the side of the window that we were seeing. And, and you think that's pretty amazing. We thought it was pretty amazing. That's why we snapped the shot. We stopped there. This is part of a panorama my son took. It's this amazing thing, you know, where you get to see this panorama. And we thought that was cool. And see, here's the thing. We didn't know how far this road was going to go up. We didn't know when it was going to be the last turn up. All we knew is we kept going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And we look out the window and it looks pretty, but still we're just going back and forth until we went around one final corner and encountered this. It was 
July 1st, and there were people up there skiing because this is a 10,000 foot high ski run that only has one lift over a cliff that little kids were going over, and I kid you not, it's about a thousand foot drop, and then there's a lift down there to bring everybody back up. And we get up there, and all of the skiers are behind this photo to, the, to my right, because I wasn't interested so much in all of them. I was interested in this amazing vista in front of us. And we were seeing the Rocky Mountains from horizon to horizon. And I kid you not, the color of the sky was that blue. It was insane. And it's like, you did not know going around those corners that you were going to end up there. We had no idea. Let's show the next one. We were kind of happy because that was Beartooth Pass Summit, elevation 10,900 feet or something. And go to the one last picture here, just so you get one other picture of this incredible vista that we were looking over. And here's the thing. When you're taking your steps, you never know when the last step is going to happen, and you also never know exactly where that step is going to take you. And so we were going back and forth, and just imagine what would have happened if we had said like a third of the way up there, listen, this is too treacherous. This is too scary. We're just going to turn right around. Because by the way, the Montana side of this road was great, but the Wyoming side of this road was frightening. And so we could have, as soon as we crossed over into Wyoming, just been like, okay, we're going to turn back around. We're going to find a different route. But if we had, we would have missed out on this incredible experience with our family. And it was just because we kept taking the next steps. Today's message is a little bit about endurance, but it's a lot about who you're trusting on your steps. Let's jump into it. Okay. Joshua chapter two. This is an amazing story. Joshua chapter two. And I'm going to just read basically the whole thing. Here we go. Verse 1. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. A couple quick things I have to say. Number one, about the whole prostitute thing. These spies did not enter the house of the prostitute to take advantage of her services. Prostitutes were the only people in that ancient society who also maintained an inn. It was just sort of understood that if you maintained an inn, there were other services that you also provided. And so the word that means prostitute is exactly the same word as the word that means innkeeper in this ancient culture. And so the one word means both of these things. So was she just a prostitute, just an innkeeper, or both? We don't know. The Bible repeatedly refers to her as if she was an actual prostitute, but we trust that these guys were there because it's the only place they could hide out in a place like Jericho because it was the only place of lodging available to travelers. And so they go. But there's another thing you need to pay attention to, and it's that Joshua secretly sends two spies. This is key. Because see, 40 years ago, Moses unsecretly sent 12 spies. And two of those spies came back with a good report we should take the land. And 10 of those spies came back with a bad report it's too scary. And Joshua says, I'm going to follow a lesson from Moses. I'm only going to send two. 
And I'm not going to tell anyone else I'm sending to. I'm just going to secretly send to. And that's one of the reasons why the story of Jericho skips a couple chapters. Because this thing here is happening secretly and kind of behind the scenes. So anyway, these guys go. They meet this woman named Rahab. And she lets them stay at her house. Verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. Everybody knows Rahab took these guys in. She's the innkeeper, prostitute, whichever, both. It doesn't matter. Everybody knows she took these guys in. And so they go over to her and they're like, they're spies. But, verse 4, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Yes, Rahab lies. But this is not a book to give us the indication of the morality of lying to protect someone's life or not. So I'm just going to move on past it because this is not trying to answer that question for us. So let's just go ahead and see what questions it is trying to answer for us. Verse 8 says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. What? She said, I know that the Lord... Remember, when you see the capital letters L-O-R-D in your English Bible, that is a way of partially translating the Hebrew word for the name of God that no one ever said out loud. The Hebrew word for the name of God is Yahweh. And around Jesus' time, no one ever said that word out loud. Back in these days, they did. But around Jesus' time, no one ever said that word out loud. And so all of the times when people would read the Bible out loud, read the what for us would be the Old Testament out loud, they would replace the word Yahweh with the word Adonai, which means Lord. And that's why the tradition is for in English, us, to have the word Lord there, where the Hebrew text actually says Yahweh. And that's important because this is a woman from Jericho using the name of Israel's God and says, your God, I know, is in charge. See what else she says. The Lord has given you this land and a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Notice she doesn't mention a husband or any children, but she does mention father, brother, mothers, sisters, things. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell, 
what we are doing. We will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was a part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they, went, when they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. There are two kinds of fear that you can have in your life. One is the fear of the one who's really in charge. And the other one is the fear that prevents you from doing what you're supposed to. See, the thing with, with Rahab is that even though fear had melted the hearts of all the people around her, fear had paralyzed all the people around her, for her, it motivated her. Fear motivated Rahab. And it told her, listen, I'm afraid of the God of the universe. And so I'm going to take a step today in his direction. Now, she's not saying, oh, this day I'm giving up my life of prostitution and all of my sins I confess and I'm going to... No, for her, it was just simply this. I'm scared of God. I'm scared that he's going to take this land and he's going to kill me in the process. And so I'm going to be nice to the closest person I can, who's the closest I know how to get to God. And then I'm going to ask them for favor. And lo and behold, they say yes. So the first part of this story is a fear that's a good fear. But now we come to another part of the story that I want to take you to. Chapter 5, verse 13. One of my favorite lines in all of the Bible shows up here. Chapter 5, verse 13, it says this. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, this is interesting from a trivia standpoint, because this is a repeat of the burning bush experience that Moses had. Moses encounters the angel of the Lord in the midst of this burning bush, and the voice says, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground, and he does. And now Joshua is also encountering a messenger from God who says, take off your sandals, the place where you're standing is holy ground, which by the way, remember, God says, I'm going to give you this land. In other words, God says, it's my land, and I get to choose what touches it, including, I don't like those shoes. I want you. 
I like, I like it when, when you're touching what I'm going to give you. And not when there's this thing in between you and the ground that I've prepared for you. He says, he says, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he has this conversation with the angel of the Lord who gives him some instructions. Take a look at these instructions. He says this. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've delivered Jericho into your hands. In, along with its king and its fighting men, march around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times when the priests blowing the trumpets, with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. God is giving him some pretty clear instructions here on how to tackle this situation. It's very similar to what God said to Moses when he said, go back to Pharaoh and do this, 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 and this, and I'll get my people out of there. Now God is saying to Joshua, go to the city, do this, 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 and this, and I will rescue you from their hands. There's just one tiny little detail in here that is one of my favorite details in the entire Bible, where Joshua looks at this massively impressive soldier, and he says, are you on our side or on our enemies?" And the answer is, neither. And this is one of the main places where we misunderstand God. See, a lot of us want to pretend that God is on our side. And that there's another side out there that he is against. And it would be very easy for the people of Israel to feel that way as they're entering the land. Because they're the ones who received the promise. They're the ones who are going to receive the promised land. And they're the ones who are going to be responsible for wiping out all the people who currently live there. So clearly it looks like God is on our side. He's not on their side. But that's not what God ever said. God never said, I'm on your side. He said, I'm with you. And there's a difference. God said, I'm with you. He didn't say, I'm on your side. And so when when Joshua actually says, are you on my side or on my enemy's side? He says, neither. Because the truth of the matter is, the question isn't whether God is on your side. The question is whether you're on God's side. The question is, which side are you on? Not which side is he on? And so God's like, okay, hang on a second, Joshua. I'm not here for you. I'm here because there's something I'm doing. And I'm inviting you to be part of it. And so do these things. And then he gives them some clear instructions. And then Joshua does them. I want to take just a very quick sidetrack. We're about to read a story where an entire city gets wiped out. And I mean everything in the city plus all the people in the city. And there are a lot of people who have a lot of problems with the idea of the genocide that shows up in the Bible, where entire cultures of people, entire cities get destroyed, and it seems as if God is endorsing this genocide. And the one principle you have to remember is that when asked, whose side are you on, God says neither. See, this is not an issue of the Israelites being the ones to wipe out all of the people God doesn't like. There are four very specific things I want to draw your attention to with regard to the apparent genocide stories in the Bible. Number one, the command shows up in the entire history of humanity once. 
It's a command related to entering the promised land. There's no other time in all of the Old Testament scripture or the New Testament scripture or any other time in history where God tells one group of people to destroy another group of people. It only shows up once related to entering the promised land. Number two, the reason it shows up here is that God has given the people in the promised land grace after grace after grace after grace. He says so. He says, I have given them grace over and over and over again, and their wickedness has reached its limit, and so it's time for them to be judged. And so number two, God is bringing judgment on them. Not because Israel is better, but just because God is bringing judgment on them. So number one, it's the only time the command shows up. Number two, it's God's giving judgment after grace. Number three, this only happens after God has established himself as king of the universe through amazing miracles. Like parting of the Red Sea, parting of the Jordan River, a fire, a pillar of fire leading them at night, a pillar of cloud leading them by day. All of the things that God has done miraculously, insanely over these people's history, them definite proof that this is truly the word from God. And then finally, God shows mercy. As we're going to see today, and as we'll see next week too, When someone comes to God's people and asks for mercy, it is given. So, a lot of people say a lot of bad things about this part of the Bible. But I want to reaffirm to you that what we're about to read, what we're about to see, is something that is very rare, very unique, highly, highly, highly defended by evidence and at the same time, always open to mercy and grace. God never shuts the door of mercy and grace on people. But anyway, let's, let's see what happens here. Verse 6. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance! March around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. So armed guard, then ark of the Lord with the priests, then behind them the rest of the soldiers, rest of the fighting men. We don't have any clarity of whether or not the women and children were also marching around with them, but we, indi- we think probably not. But anyway, the armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. There's something I need to point out to you. We looked at it last week. I don't know if you remember it. But in in Joshua chapter 1, God had said a very interesting promise to Joshua. In verse 3, I want to read it to you again. He says this, I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses. Now, where have they been setting their feet? 
for the last week around this city. God says, I'm going to give you every single place you set your foot. But God, how many times do I have to set my foot there? But God, how long is it going to take before you keep your promise to me? I've been stepping around this wall for six days. And then on the seventh day, six more times before the final time. That means 12 times they've marched around this city. 12 times they've marched around the city. God told them every place you set your foot. And yet, here I imagine, if I were there, I would have been like, seriously, God? I mean, couldn't you have done this miracle in shorter time than this? And maybe I even would have gotten to that place where I'd have been like, God, you said every place we set our feet, and yet it clearly looks like you lied to us. I want to show you one other passage. This is from the New Testament. Jesus says this in the book of Luke. Jesus told this parable to his disciples to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? There is an amazing power here in this phrase that you have to sense as the power that's happening when they're walking around Jericho. Jesus says, listen, my father is not an unjust judge. My father is the righteous judge. My father loves you. My father cares for you. And if you are crying out to him, what in the world would make you think that he is going to stay sleeping? God is going to move. He is going to bring justice. He is going to work it out. And he is definitely going to do this. He will see that they get justice. And from God's perspective, he's going to see that they get it quickly. In other words, they're going to get it at exactly the right time they need to get this justice. And yet Jesus asked this question, when I come back, is anyone going to believe? Is there still going to be faith left on this earth? In other words, are there going to be people who have taken 139,000 steps and still take one more? Are there going to be people who've knocked 500 times and still knock one more? Are there going to be people who march around a city 12 times and still march one more? See, that's the question. The question is, if God is on a mission and we are on his team, then it's not up to us to determine exactly how it ends. It's up to us to just keep walking. See what happens the rest of this story. Verse 16. 
The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blasts, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Check this out. Joshua here is saying, listen, we are going to march around the city one more time. Yes, we are going to march one more time, and this is the time. You and I don't usually know which knock is the last knock, which turn is the last turn, which step is the last step, but Joshua says, this is the last round. This is the last time we're marching around, and when we hit those trumpets, I want you to yell like you've never yelled before. I want you to scream like you've never screamed before, and God is going to do something amazing. He's going to make the walls just collapse and crumble, and you're going to go in and take the city. Taking the city includes destroying everything in the city. We are going to absolutely ransack. The whole city is one giant sacrifice to God, one giant altar to God. We're going in there, and we're destroying destroying everything. Why? Because we did nothing to earn it, and so we deserve to take nothing from it. Write it down this way. The victory belongs to the Lord. The thing that can make you fearless is when you're taking your steps with absolute confidence that the victory belongs to the Lord. You don't know which step is going to be the last step that brings the victory, but the victory is his. And my job is just to keep taking steps. My job is to take one more step. Knock one more time. Make it one more lap. Because the victory is his. Now I want to close this out by showing you one of the most amazing things in this story. Let's look at verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who'd spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. But the end I want to just remind you of is that verse right there, verse 25. She lives among the Israelites to this day. You see, what happened is Rahab said, I'm going to use my fear to take a step in the direction of God. And when she takes a step in the direction of God, she invites other people to join in. They do. They're in the house. Miraculously, the walls fall, but a house that's built into the wall doesn't fall. That's a miracle. So all the walls fall. Her house doesn't fall. They go in. They rescue her. They bring her out. And now she has been saved 
And because she took a step towards God that enabled God to show grace to her, to her family, to whoever else it was that she invited to be in that house with her. And it gets better. She lives with the Israelites even to the day of the writing of this text. And it gets better. Don't you remember I told you she didn't mention a husband or children? As a prostitute, you would have thought maybe she had a bunch of children. I don't know exactly what happened there. She certainly didn't have a husband. But we later know that she found a guy, an Israelite guy, a guy named Salmon, who married her, somehow redeemed her by grace, had a child with her, and that child's name was Boaz. Boaz married a woman named Ruth and had a child with her. They named Obed. Obed had a child they named Jesse. And Jesse had a child they named David. And David is the greatest king who was ever in Israel. And David is the king who set up the promise of Jesus, who is one of David's descendants. Rahab makes one choice. She says, I'm going to use my fear to move in the direction of God. I'm going to take this one step to move in this direction of God. And that one step unleashes a flood of grace that flows throughout the centuries to you and me today. The walls fall. It's miraculous. But nonetheless is the miracle of God's grace at work in a person who takes their fear and yet steps right into the way it should be. I want to give you this one final thing to write down. As you're facing your own fears, your own challenges, your own struggles, your own worries, last week I taught you to remember God. This week I'm going to ask you to step into hope and to say, listen, if God's provision is good, if God's promise is good, if God's presence is with me, then I'm just going to step into the next thing he's calling me to do, whatever it might be. I'm going to step into the next right move I can make, and I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to hope that he's going to bring about the victory in his time, in his way. And as you begin to practice this, remember and then step, I really believe God will bring victory in ways that you can't even imagine. I'm believing it for myself. I'm believing it for this church. I'm believing it for all of you. And I pray that you would join me in this stepping one step at a time as we put our trust and our faith in God. I want to ask you to spend just a few moments in reflection. We're going to sing a final song just to kind of carry this home into our hearts. But before we do that, let me invite you to just spend a few moments in silence asking God, what does this mean for me today? And let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, Check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.